Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. According to Jared Diamond, evolution is the most profound and powerful idea to have been conceived in the last two centuries. According to the late Harvard biologist, Ernest Meyer, evolution is the most important concept in biology. And the theory is no doubt great because it has stood the test of time. Although there have been various additions over the past century, Darwinianism is still pretty much in one piece. And not the same could be said for a lot of other scientific theories. But this leads to the question of how does evolution by natural selection really work? We hear something about it concerns the selection and preservation of favorable mutations across generations. But this leads to a question that many of us have had, which is how does one produce a world of design through random mutations? How does this really happen? My guest today is one of the world's leading researchers in evolutionary biology. His name is Professor Andreas Wagner of the University of Zurich in Switzerland. He is part of the Institute of Evolutionary Biology and Environmental Studies, and he's written a fascinating new book that I think makes a contribution to this field by addressing one of these Darwinian mysteries head-on. The name of the book is entitled Arrival of the Fittest. Solving Evolution's Greatest Puzzle. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As I was saying uh, before, I came across a review of your book in New Scientist, and it's, it got my interest because I don't think that there has been a lot of uh, progress uh, in this field, although uh, I may be missing something, but the point here is that many of us who have been raised on Richard Dawkins and Ernest Meyer uh, may have these doubts in our minds about how the random uh, mutations can generate new variations. And this is something you take head on in your book. Before we get there, though, why don't you, in your own words, uh, describe what the core principle of Darwinianism is and then where you think there's some gaps that need to be filled in. Yeah, so you know, Darwin, Darwinism is really about you know, two core principles. Um, the first is that uh, Darwin taught us that uh, all life that exists today descends from a common ancestor. And the second principle that Darwin postulated is that natural selection is really important in this process. Now, I think it's hard to overstate Darwin's genius in this regard. The man had no idea 
about the mechanism of inheritance. He had no idea that organisms like us are these enormously complex assemblages of molecules that we only really learned about in the 20th century. Yet he has been able to produce a principle that has not only stood you know, many times over in the experiments that today's technologies allow us to make. Now, Darwin's theory also had a big limitation, and to his great credit, Darwin was aware of that limitation. He said somewhere in the origin of species, when he talked about how new variations, new kinds of organisms originate, he said um, to say that these variations originate by random chance is just another way of professing our ignorance. And so basically what this means is that Darwin really didn't know how new things or variants of existing organisms arise. And that's the biggest limitation of, of his theory. And that uh, limitation has been put very succinctly about half a century after Darwin by a famous botanist, uh, Hugo de Vries, who is now well known for rediscovering Mendel's laws uh, of inheritance, when he said that natural selection can explain the survival of the fittest, but it cannot explain the arrival of the fittest. So the problem is that natural selection only selects what's there. Um, postulating that natural selection is important doesn't tell us how new, new things actually originate. Yeah, and I, you know, when I was doing my own research on Darwinianism, that's that's something that struck me as well. Uh, I was using a textbook in addition to some other sources, and it's hard to find a description of how uh, new organisms or new traits developed. And I had come to the conclusion that it's it's by basically luck that that uh, the 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 mutations sort of somehow pile on or there's a new or there's a new mutation and that some new feature uh, sprouts out of of an animal or new feathers or thicker fur or something and and in your own work you you address this head on and what what was the inspiration for for your work here and I like you to talk about the inspiration and then what paths you've gone down to, to address this explanatory gap? Yeah, so the inspiration I'd like to illustrate with an example. Okay. Um, there is a protein that's called opsin that occurs um, in millions and millions of copies in the back of our eyes, in the retina, uh, inside photoreceptor cells that allow us to, to detect light. In fact, opsin is the protein that detects light in our eyes. Now, like any other protein, opsin is a long string of 20 different kinds of building blocks. They're called amino acids. It's a string-like molecule. Um, and you can think of it actually as a text written in a 20-letter molecular alphabet. That text, in the case of opsin, happens to be about 300 amino acids long. Now, like any other text, we can think of this text as being um, part of a large collection of texts, namely the, if you will, the library of all possible texts, all possible um, texts that can be written in this 20-letter uh, alphabet. Now, you can ask a very simple question about uh, evolution. Let's say there was only one such text in this library um, that encodes the ability to detect light in the back of our eyes. If evolution tried 
let's say, every second in every single organism that has existed since life originated some 4 billion years ago, if evolution tried a new text from this library every second, how long would it take to find that one text that encodes the ability to detect light? Well, it turns out that would take much longer than the age of the universe. It's so unlikely that it would actually never happen. And the reason is that this library is so enormously large. For example, that library is many times larger than um, the total number of hydrogen atoms in the universe. So this just wouldn't work. And um, this is a very interesting puzzle, right? Because something's got to be wrong here. You know, these these texts are around. You know, they occur not only in our eyes; they occur in the eyes of many other organisms. They may actually have been discovered multiple times independently by different organisms. So something's missing from this picture. And um, to find out what's missing has been an inspiration, I think. Or, or this problem has been an inspiration for the research of, of my lab and that of many others. And uh, we now know what the answer really is um, in the case of proteins and also in the case of other biological systems that are important for innovation, that is for how evolution discovers new things. And uh, it turns out proteins are not by far not the only kinds of systems. Um, and, um, and the question is, how do we go about you know, finding out what's wrong? So, you know, one kind of thing that we do is that um, we expose huge populations um, of microbes, for example, organisms like E. coli, but also of molecules that we let evolve in the lab. We expose these populations to new and challenging environments, for example, where they, you know, environments where they need to um, discover a new ability, for example, they discover the ability to survive uh, um, a toxin or to um, um, cleave a small molecule that they can use as food to reproduce themselves. Um, so we expose these populations um, to challenges and we observe them through laboratory evolution experiments for hundreds or thousands of generations um, and find whether they meet those challenges, whether they invent something new that helps them survive, and then we analyze their DNA gen genetically to, through um, um, you know, the latest technology really that allows us to read um, the DNA of organisms and uh, evolving molecules, many, many individuals at a time in a single experiment. So that's one kind of thing we do. Another kind of thing that we do um, is that we use powerful computers to study these libraries of nature. Um, so for example, we use these computers to uh, compare proteins um, that nature has discovered in its uh, four billion year long history and basically to map them in their text into the library. That is, we want to know where are they in this library. Uh, what we also use uh, is we use uh, computer algorithms that allow us to predict the um, um, the function of proteins, but more importantly, even the three-dimensional shape that proteins assume. What I didn't mention so far is that this linear string of amino acids uh, folds in a very complicated manner uh, in a ways that we don't really fully understand for all proteins yet in three-dimensional space. Um, and this shape that it assumes in three-dimensional space is really important for its function. So we um, use... Uh, computers to model, to predict these shapes for you know, simplified proteins and uh, that allow us to really study uh, for millions and millions of proteins and other molecules the organization of these libraries in which nature innovates. 
if I understand this, one of your experiments in the laboratory is to use simple organisms and expose them to what what might be called evolutionary conditions, right? And and by looking at them, you observe, if I if I have this right, that the the simple organisms quote unquote evolve or adapt to the conditions faster than if there was only one answer to the uh, problem posed by the environment. Is that, exactly. Is that's that that's really what we see. And that's, uh, I think, already one of the core insights and really quite a simple insight. Yeah. Um, and let me explain this again with the analogy um, of a library. Right, so I, I posed the original paradox there that you know if there was only one text in this library that did that encoded or that, that had a specific meaning um, expressed in a molecule, really, namely the ability to detect light, we'd never find it. But what we find, and many others have found, is that um, there is not just one such text. There is not just a dozen such texts. There is not just a million such texts. There is, in fact, trillions and trillions of texts. So many that we have a hard time counting them. Um, and what is more, these texts are actually not just in one location or close together in the library. Um, if you, we want to compare this to a human library, let's say we're looking at um, we're looking for texts that describe how to build a transistor, right? Yeah. Um, then you know if you have a human an engineering library, let's say you know you'd have a catalog in that library that describes where that text is, and you you know use that catalog to um, to you know, walk to that particular section of the library so you can look up that text. And nearby, you might find other text, related text, that describe how to build a transistor, perhaps in a little different way, uh, alternative ways of designing transistors and so forth. So, in a human library, would have all related texts in one section. But in, in the library of proteins, this is not at all what we see. I've already said we had trillions of texts that have the same meaning that explain basically how to do um, you know, one thing in different ways. But these texts are not bunched up in one section of the library. They're all spread out through the library. And what is more, they form uh, what we might call lar a large network of texts. That is, you can walk from one text by changing a single letter to a neighboring text that still has the ability well, encodes a specific molecular meaning, for example, the ability to detect light. And then we can walk from that text to another neighbor and to the next neighbor and so forth until we've actually walked almost all the way through the library and still have preserved this ability to, do, to perform this particular function. So in this sense, these texts form a very large and sprawling network that extends all the way through the library. One of the, one of the mysteries here for me is as as you're talking as I was reading your book I had in mind uh say like a big amazon.com warehouse or a auto parts warehouse and you have a robotic arm um sort of on top that's sort of going around and picking up the right pieces and and what you're saying is that the right letter or the right piece is in various parts of the warehouse it's not just in one part of the warehouse, right? Exactly. I mean, I mean, There's that, that, the same not... kinds of pieces are all over the warehouse. Okay, so really. okay, but this is something that I know you do that I think might might help um, sort of underscore really the the depth of this problem, which is how many pieces need to be assembled 
in order to build this new trait or this new uh, limb. I mean, example might be, you know, thicker fur or a longer mm-hmm. beak uh, because because uh, I think a lot of people uh, get confused sometimes, and maybe I'm one of them, where, you know, we have this... Um, this idea that genes associate with what you with with uh, you know physical characteristics or the phenotype, but genes themselves are built up of a lot of different molecules, and so are we talking here about molecules being assembled, or are we talking about something, uh, or are we talking uh, DNA or genes, or what are we what are, what what pieces are we are you talking about? Are you talking about the molecules? So basically, you know what I've told you about really so far is the simplest kind of biological system that is namely a protein and its building blocks a protein is a molecule and its building blocks are even smaller molecules those amino acids that i mentioned right okay um so we're talking about a single large molecule that does something useful uh in the body now we like to work with these relatively simple kinds of systems because they're so far removed uh from you know the let's say, the whole complexity of a human body, um, which we don't really fully understand, but these systems we can understand. Uh, so we can you know, model them computationally in the computer, and we can also engineer them in the laboratory. We can do all kinds of things with them that we can't really do uh, with a more complicated organism or more complicated evolving system. However, we do also study more complicated um things that go on in our body. For example, um, there is metabolism. Metabolism is an enormously complicated network of chemical reactions that basically does two things. It takes sources of energy and chemical elements from the environment, that, from the environment that's what we call nutrients, and converts these into forms that our body can use. Now, metabolism has been a source of innovation in biology evolution since life's origin, and it turns out it's still a source of innovation to this day. So, for example, there is bacteria that can not only survive, but actually thrive on highly toxic man-made molecules, such as, for example, DDT, the pesticide, or pentachlorophenol, another very toxic molecule that was only discovered or invented in the mid-20th century. And now there's bacteria out there that actually have found new ways of metabolizing these molecules not only enabling them to survive these molecules, but actually use them as their only source of energy. So, this ability is uh, given to to these organisms through their metabolism, as I said, a complex network of chemical reactions, and each of the chemical reactions is is catalyzed by a specific protein, a specific amino acid string that is encoded in a genome uh, in a single gene. Now, when we're talking about even the metabolism of a simple organism like that of E. coli, our the famous or infamous gut bacterium, right. and we're talking about a thousand different chemical reactions. Um, and uh, they are of the order of a thousand uh, proteins that catalyze these reactions, and uh, they are encoded by of the order of a thousand genes or so. So this is already a really complicated system. And part of the reason why we actually studied this system is not only because it has been a source of innovations, but also because we can actually predict from the set of chemical reactions in a metabolism what this metabolism is able to do, what kinds of nutrients the organism that hosts this metabolism can 
survive on, for example. Right? So here we're still talking about molecules, but they are hugely complicated assemblages of molecules. So they are one step removed from the simple individual proteins that we study. And it turns out we can also there study libraries, in this case not of protein text, but of metabolisms that are encoded in the genome. Mm -hmm. And we find that these libraries actually have a very similar organization to the library of proteins that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Namely, there is not just one way of organizing this chemical reaction network such that an organism can survive on a particular energy source, let's say the sugar glucose or the pesticide DDT. There is trillions and trillions of ways and they form these vast sprawling networks spread out all over the library. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one step in complexity up, right? Yeah. Where we still have you know, a lack of understanding because higher organisms are simply so much more complex, is to make it all the way from these individual proteins to something as complicated, let's say, uh, as, let's say, hairs or feathers, or uh, what you mentioned, you know, fur, um, or, you know, even more complicated features of organisms, let's say, the brain and how it works. Right, right, right. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Professor Andreas Wagner of the University of Zurich, uh, who's written a new book, that I think advances the, the ball on, on evolution. It's called Arrival of the Fittest, Solving Evolution's Greatest Puzzle. And those who, those who read, read about evolution, uh, the, uh, Professor, I'm sure come across at some point the books of Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins has this concept called cumulative selection, which is not his, his, uh, his concept. But he, he's a champion of it, and he's written a number of books that talk about how um, small changes over time can build a complex um, organism or a complex feature such as the human eye. I think one of his books is called Climbing Mount Improbable. Where does your work fit into cumulative selection? What do you think about that? Uh, because I see, I see you making sort of a a change or a a a modif an enhancement of that. But what is what is your feeling about cumulative selection, as presented by uh, Richard Dawkins and others? Yeah. So let me just say, you know, first off, and you know, Dawkins is a great science writer, and he has you know, the ability to make very complicated. Um, processes, you know, crystal clear to a general audience. And I think that's something to be really applauded. Um, he focuses really primarily on the power of natural selection to preserve what is there. And I have absolutely no problem. I fully buy into um, the idea that you, you need to have, you know, small steps. Evolution proceeds in generally small steps that need to be preserved individually so that we can get anywhere. I think the... Um, the limitation of this kind of writing is exactly the same kind of limitation that, Dawkin, uh, that, sorry, that Darwin already acknowledged in The Origin of Species, that it doesn't tell us where the random variants are coming from or where, these, where new features are coming from. They may be individually small steps, um, but um, this kind of writing and this older kind of theorizing is largely silent on the question um, where new variants come from. And this is sort of where our work comes in. So I see this work as mostly complementary 
to what Dawkins and others and others have said. Um, they focus on natural selection and its ability to preserve small stepwise changes. We actually uh, focus on the question of where these stepwise changes come from. I see. Well, okay. Well, that's that's helpful. And and as I understand it right now, by increasing the the pathways uh, and increasing the messages or the or the or the coding sequences for uh, creative changes, your research is showing a way in which new features can arise. Is that exactly. Correct? And it's really a very simple idea. You know, you have to yeah. think about evolution. Evolution really uses populations of organisms. And we will, we'd like to think of what these populations are doing as exploring nature's giant libraries, like the library of proteins I mentioned, or the library of metabolisms that I briefly mentioned, and there's others as well. So these um, populations consist of individuals that take blind step through these libraries. And um, that's where random change comes in. These steps are really blind. They don't know where they're going next. Yeah. Now, again, if there was only one solution to any problem that an organism would face, it would take them forever to get there. Certainly would take them longer than uh, since life has, around, has been around on this yeah. planet. Yeah. But since there are so many solutions and they're spread out all over the library, um, the chances are much higher that one of the individuals in such a population will stumble onto that solution. Yeah, yeah. Now let's that, let's say. I mean, I I think this makes a lot of sense for for simple organisms, but it seems to me that as the complexity of the trait increases, and the human eye or the brain, a wing. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of other features that you're more aware of than I am, that, that obviously would have a much more complicated uh, molecular sequence. Don't you have to, doesn't the problem get increasingly difficult the more complicated the trait is? Because you're not just searching for one, uh, one solution. You have to have that sentence, like war and peace, for example. You have to get all those words in the right order. Um, to to come out with the with the whole trait at the end of the process. Yeah, that's certainly a valid point, and you know I think the answer is is uh, really very simple, and, and that's where the importance of natural selection comes in. You know, these traits like that, that of an eye, you know, they haven't been created in a single day, and they also don't have to be created all at once. Yeah. Um, so, for example, it is well known that uh, eyes have been um, discovered and have uh, originated some, I don't know, more than a dozen different times in different um, animal phyla. And, you know, when they originate, they actually don't originate like our eye with a really complicated lens and uh, uh, a vitreous body and all kinds of muscle that can, that can, muscles that can um, uh, contract um, or stretch the lens. So th they actually originate in very, very simple ways as simple accumulation cells that um, harbor one of those proteins like opsin that detect light. And then these accumulations of cells become invaginated until they form a pit that can focus light a little bit better. And from there it goes on. So this is an very, very gradual process that takes place over many, many small steps, and that certainly facilitates 
the um, the evolution of complex organs. If nature had to create these all in one step, um, then it would also be impossible. Now, let me add one more thing there, and that is all this happens over amounts of time that are so unfathomably large. We can't really imagine them. You know, we can maybe imagine 100 years or 1,000 years. Maybe you can imagine 100,000 years. But um, complex organs have evolved over tens of millions of years. And um, when we have difficulty imagining how they have evolved, it's, I think, simply because we do not take sufficiently into consideration, and we simply have a hard time wrapping our minds around how enormously large the amounts of time involved are here. Yeah, I think that that's one way that your your work is really an enhancement of the body of research uh, that we know as the modern evolutionary theory. And by, by focusing head-on on the arrival of the fittest, it seems to me your research has shown a possible mechanism to create new features, and I think that that is really a, a step forward. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know interesting uh, passages in your in your book that I, I like to like to turn to a little bit here. Uh, because again, those who read evolution and and, and let's face it, people like um, like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould, the late Stephen Jay Gould, really helped popularize um, evolution. And it's I think it's a credit to their writing skills that that many of their books are bestsellers, even though the topic is pretty doggone dry uh, for for the common observer, <laughs> but. There's this concept of essentialism, which many of the um, biologists don't have rejected. I know Ernest Meyer um, have rejected it. And essentialism, for for those who don't know what it is, is essentially a sort of platonic concept where human life sort of follows forms, and there is some and it's it's it sounds a little bit like like creationism in the sense that um, it suggests that species are formed whole as opposed to a gradual change. What is what is your spin on essentialism? I know you talk about it, but but why don't you talk about what your spin is on this concept? So yes, before um, Ernst Bayer, the, um, the famous zoologist of you may, who you've mentioned, um, long before him actually, um, biologists or some biologists you know, would think of um, species as having an essence that is a particular set of traits that are unchangeable that defines these species. And that's what's called an essentialist uh, species concept. And um, it turns out that is actually not very helpful to categorize a lot of species that live out there um, because they're often blending features of one another. So, for example, there is one uh, very interesting organism called the glass lizard. Um, and um, the glass lizard looks actually like a snake. Okay? <laughs> so there's a number of features that are snake-like and not lizard-like. Um, but it turns out, if you look actually at its uh, deeper anatomy, it, it really is, is, a, is, a, is a lizard, and it also has evolutionary relationships from its DNA 
um, that we can glean from his DNA that make it uh, similar to other lizards more than to snakes. So here is an example of a species that doesn't really fit, fit new neat categories of species. And that's part of the reason why biologists like Ernst Meyer uh, rejected the essentialist species concepts of the 19th century. And for very good reasons. I don't think they should be revived. Um, species are really um, not always very clearly defined and distinguished essential categories. However, you know, if we now talk about a different kind of essentialism, I mean, the one that... You know, um, comes up in the course of our work. Um, think about this library that I mentioned about, that I mentioned. This library is essentially a mathematical concept. And um, we could say it's a platonic concept in the sense that it exists in, in, you know, in an abstract space of our minds or somewhere out there. We don't, we're not quite sure where. Um, and so the question arises then whether such concepts like this you know, are um, that are abstract mathematical concepts, are they real in some sense, in some general sense, or are they just figments of our imagination? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a very interesting question. You know, I don't have a final answer to that question, but I'm leaning towards the answer that uh, Plato has given, namely that they are actually realer than our reality, that our reality emanates, if you will, from them. And this is actually a position that is not not revolutionary at all. This is a position that many mathematicians um, in the course of the centuries have really taken. Uh, some mathematicians say that you know when we actually prove theorems, we discover truths that have already been out there. Yeah. It's nothing that we invent. It's nothing that we just come up with in, in our minds. Um, and, um, and these... these uh, Mathematical truths are actually even more general, more important, more uh, more real than our everyday tangible reality. Yeah, yeah. I think that that I mean that's related to another concept that is one of my favorites, and it's also in your book, which is the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. And I did have Mary Olivio on the show last year at some point who who's written um, a number of books in this concept. I think one of them is called Is God a Mathematician? And, you know, this whole, this whole notion of how it is possible for math to sort of uh, guide not only uh, the course of quote-unquote creation, but also evolution is 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 really a mystery, and I think that um, with the the prevalent use of computers now, it's even more front and center. I mean, would you agree, Professor? I mean, your I mean, your work has been advanced significantly by by computers. I would take it, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's there's no question about it. Uh, even just forty years or so ago, you know. Anything that I describe in that book that's based on computation, not everything is, is, is based on computation, but the computational aspects of our research, that would have been impossible to do. People started to speculate about these libraries, but they had no idea what they would look like. And computers have been really instrumental in giving us the first glimpse. Another thing that's also been really important is experimental technology that... Um, 
that allows us, and this is actually where you know Platonism may make a first connection to the you know, experimental world, that allows us to take individual texts of these libraries and to actually synthesize the proteins that these texts encode. So for any kind of amino acid string, any kind of these 20, um, um, 20 alphabet, 20 letter alphabet amino acid sequences, we can manufacture a protein and study what it's doing. So we can actually take arbitrary volumes of these libraries and look at them and and read them and use biochemical instrumentation to to find out what they're all about yeah. so there's these two um, these two aspects of our work that that um, move this platonic these platonic ideas from the realm of mathematical speculation into something that's a bit more concrete yeah I mean it's not <laughs> This is this is where I think science gets 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 very interesting, and and maybe this is the kind of topic that isn't isn't taught in this in the classrooms as much. But there's no doubt that many of the great scientists, such as Einstein, for example, and even even Stephen Hawking, Paul Davies, these guys, when they when they really um, sort of evaluate and examine the workings of nature, they start talking about understanding the mind of God and and, and, and without without being without giving any connotations to the word God, the point is it's very similar to trying to understand sort of the the, the mathematical organized framework that science is practiced in. And that's that's something that uh, I think to me is is very exciting because it it shows that that um, there is this tendency to order and and this 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 goes to this a related topic professor which is the concept of self-organization and I know you talk about it in your in your book and I think it's related to what we're talking about here but but what but what do you attribute the library to? Because even if you have multiple answers in the library or in the warehouse, and even if you have these multiple pathways, there seems to be some kind of method to the madness, so to speak. Um, you know, why is it that the organism is driving towards this solution to an environmental problem? I mean, where do you stand on self-organization? Yeah, I think you know self-organization is a, a very uncontroversial phenomenon um, that um, describes the uh, emergence of you know complex structure in the world through usually simple physical laws. Um, and when these simple physical laws are applied to you know many atoms or more complicated objects, then they have very unpredictable consequences, and sometimes beauty and order emerges. I think it's an absolutely fascinating phenomenon, and I'm, it's very gratifying that we um, see this also in the kind of um, processes, namely evolutionary processes, that I'm really interested in. Because the way I like to think about these libraries that I described is that they are self-organized. Um, that is, they have an order, an internal order, that is not imposed from the outside world, but it emerges all by itself. Yeah. And this order, the simplest aspect of this order, really is the existence of these sprawling networks of um, 
of synonymous texts in the libraries. Yeah. And so we can ask, you know, what is the simple physical law that or mathematical law that underlies this? Well, we, it turns out we know what that is. And it turns out that is, it is the simple observation that biological systems tend to be, to some extent, robust against mutation. So let me explain what that means. Um, if you take a single amino acid text in this library, a single volume in this library, it turns out that we can change multiple individual amino acids and we can still preserve the meaning of this text. This is why I said we can step from one text to its neighbor. Um, we can step to multiple neighbors of this one text and we'll still preserve the meaning of this text. That's just another way of saying that what this text is encoding, the meaning of this text, um, function of the protein that we're looking at is robust to some extent to changes in these letters. And we see this phenomenon all over the place, all over nature, in all kinds of biological systems from um, simple proteins to complex metabolisms. They're all highly robust to genetic change. And one can prove mathematically that um, this kind of robustness, the fact that each text has multiple neighbors uh, in the library that encode the same meaning is sufficient, is necessary and sufficient actually to create these sprawling networks of synonymous texts. So it's a really very, very simple mathematical principle that creates all this organization or this simple aspect of library organization at least. Yeah, yeah when you talk about robustness, what I, what, what brought to my mind was, was Darwin's struggle for existence. Because it sounds like, I mean, that's, that's one of the mysteries, I think, that remains in my own mind, is this whole struggle. Because it, it, it does appear as if you can't beat down life. <laughs> that it, 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 it struggles to exist. It strives to, to exist. It, it adapts. It overcomes poisons and toxins and cold and heat. And that is that is that what you mean by robustness? You mean this this tendency to survive? That is certainly a very important aspect of robustness. Yes, yeah. and um, we know that um, organisms, and this is one of the things that you find out in laboratory evolution experiments, um, when you actually expose them to changing environments where they always experience new challenges, they tend to become more robust to genetic change, that is, to changes in their DNA, but also to changes in the environments themselves. Right. So this kind of robustness is probably in and by itself an evolved response to changing environments, although this is not really you know, a very firm answer that we have yet. Uh, this is something that's subject of, uh, of a lot of ongoing research. Yeah. The... You know, to me, it, it sort of harkens back to the platonic forms and essentialism and, and our scientists searching, and not just scientists, but everybody, but, but our scientists searching for something that is out there, some ideal, or our scientists sort of making it up as they go along. And, you know, again, as you pointed out, that's one of the great questions in philosophy and in science but this this ten, this this self-organization and the the fact let's face it science could not exist unless the universe was ordered that's that's one of the great mis I mean science itself is a study of harmonies and so there is there is this deep question here about 
where the, where all this stuff comes from. But and we're not going to answer that. I, I don't think on the show. Although it, although it's always nice that there's mysteries remaining. And that that leads me to ask you, um, where 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 do the mysteries remain in your mind? What are what are the unanswered questions right now in evolution, and perhaps um, where do you see your research going in the future? Yeah, so I think that um, you know, our research in the future is going to go into two main directions. I think, you know, first of all, you know, what I've told you um, about this library organization is a very simple feature of these libraries that are vast beyond comprehension. So we'd like to understand a whole lot more. Are there other properties of these libraries that uh, can help evolution originate new traits, um, help to innovate? A second aspect of what we'd like to do is um, to apply these, um, these observations that we made in Nature's library to technology, because we think that there are some technologies that could actually benefit from what we've discovered to actually make technological systems um, more robust and more evolvable, more like natural systems. Yeah. So this is the direction, these are directions in which our work is going. Um, where I see one of the biggest mysteries of evolution, I probably, yeah, I think it's safe to say that's the biggest unsolved mystery is the, the mystery of the origin of life. Yeah. And I talk in Arrival of the Fittest, I, I spend one chapter talking about some recent, some not so recent developments in that area. A lot of things have happened there in the last 20 years or so. Um, but fundamentally, we still don't know when it happened, where it happened, and exactly how it happened. Given nature's enormous innovation power, I would actually be not surprised if life would have originated multiple times in different kinds of environments of this planet. Mm. Um, it's perhaps, it perhaps hasn't been a single and singular event. Um, I would not be surprised at all if life has originated in what Darwin called um, a warm pond or in and at the same time, or a few, millions, few million years earlier or later, in some high-pressure, high-temperature hydrothermal vent, or even in some very cold environments. That has also been a proposition of some chemists, that life could have arisen in cold environments. So there's so many proposals out there um, that make this a very fascinating topic of study, uh, but we still don't have a final answer how it happened. Yeah. I do recall that Ernest Meyer, who we both mentioned a few times, and again, Ernest Meyer, he lived to be 100, as you probably know, and he's, he wrote a number of popular books, including texts, and one of his books, I think, that if somebody wants to um, read up on evolution and wants something that is approachable, I would, I would recommend One Long Argument by Ernest Meyer. Not that I agree with everything in, a, in the book, by the way, but it's very readable and it's simple. But he says that um, he he believes that that or he believed that life originated only once because of how difficult it would be. And you're saying that you wouldn't be surprised if it happened more frequently. And of course, you know, roll the dice. Who knows? But but I, I have to ask you this because it's it's been it's been um, more front and center. Do you have any opinion on whether um, life could originate on other planets? I, mean, without, I, I don't want to get into UFOs here, but my point is is that given the, the, um, the conditions under which life has, 
has arisen on the planet Earth, um, the uh, it's stressful environments. What do you what do you what do you think about that? Or have you given that any thought? Well, you know, uh, yeah, of course I've given it any thought. You know, I have no better answer than the next guy. Um, but again, given that you know, um, life as it exists on on this planet and self-organization have such great powers to create order. Um, I would be extremely surprised if we wouldn't find life in some form on some exoplanet once our technology has advanced enough to detect its signature better than we can do today or once we've just examined enough of these planets. Yeah, I'm sort of coming to the same conclusion and um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they find something on Mars for you know, or, uh, or Venus for that matter because of the extreme conditions under under which life um, has been found on this on this planet. I mean, they they seem to be finding finding different forms of life everywhere, and I think that that really uh, sort of sort of underscores where this whole this whole topic goes, uh, Professor. Which is that there is this mystery about where the library came from, where life came from, and I think it's probably, hopefully, the mysteries that keep science going, that keep researchers like you inspired. Um, and and, I, and I, I would assume that you're one of the people that, you know, that would prefer there always to be mysteries because otherwise you'd have nothing to do. <laughs> so, you so. know, I'm pretty optimistic in that regard. I think yeah. there will always be mysteries. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I think we got our work cut out for, you know, thousands of years. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that um, we can ask with today's technology that we cannot, we couldn't have asked 10 years ago. And it'll be the same 20 years from now and 100 years from now and so forth. Yeah. So um, I am not at all pessimistic about the future of science. There's a lot of interesting stuff waiting to be discovered and a lot of mysteries waiting to be unraveled. Yeah, I think, and I, I think that's that's a great way to end this show. And again, I like to thank you very much for your time. And I think that uh, hopefully the listeners saw that science is progressing in the study of evolution, the study of how variations create new life forms. And Professor Wagner's book, Arrival of the Fittest, is one of those books you should read in order to get on the cutting edge of where this is going. And as the professor said at the end here, the nice thing is that after the research is over and the studies uh, are completed, uh, mysteries remain, and that, I think, is what inspires all of us who are doing this kind of work. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.